Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present John Bonifaz, co-founder and president of the group Free Speech for People, who examines reports that the Trump Justice Department sees phone records of journalists and two Democratic members of the House Intelligence Committee. Matthew Gardner, senior fellow with the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, who discusses a recent investigation revealing that billionaires pay less in U.S. income tax compared to average working Americans. And Art Tanderup, a Nebraska farmer and member of the group Bold Nebraska, who talks about the final defeat of the controversial Keystone XL tar sands pipeline. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. After a violent midterm election campaign, Mexico's populist president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's Morena Party and its allies maintained their majority in the National Congress, but lost its supermajority status and its ability to amend the national constitution. This could derail Obrador's goal of renationalizing the energy sector. The populist president has faced criticism for militarizing the war against drug cartels and his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Nationwide, three dozen candidates were killed during the campaigns. Almost all of the victims were running for local office. Obrador, known as AMLO, has called for a fourth transformation of Mexican society and remains popular among the nation's poor, despite a shrinking economy. He's raised the minimum wage and strengthened government aid programs, including supplementary payments to the elderly and students, and established training programs for youth. Two days after the election, Obrador met with U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris to discuss immigration issues and U.S. economic aid to the nations of the Northern Triangle of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. During the vice president's earlier press conference in Guatemala City, she told migrants not to come to the U.S. border, a comment that provoked criticism from immigrant advocates who accused Harris of undermining immigration law and President Biden's pledge to restore an asylum processing system at the southwest border. Almost three decades have passed since Yasser Arafat, the late Palestinian leader, and Yitzhak Rabin, Israel's prime minister at the time, shook hands on the White House lawn in 1993 after signing the Oslo Accords. That hopeful moment cemented a formal peace process that was designed to create a Palestinian state and end half a century of conflict. The goal then was to implement a peace plan within five years. In 1995, Rabin was assassinated by a right-wing extremist Israeli settler outraged at the prospect of exchanging land for peace. Israelis and Palestinians came close to a deal in 2000 under pressure from then-President Bill Clinton, but it quickly gave way to the Second Intifada when many Israelis soured on the peace process. In recent years, Israel has made peace deals with Arab neighbors who are more worried about Iran than the fate of the Palestinian people. 
Over the years, the Economist reports, exponential growth of Jewish settlements in the West Bank, increasing Israeli control over East Jerusalem, and a deep divide between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas have become insurmountable roadblocks to peace. The ouster of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, after 12 years in office, is not likely to revive peace talks, as the incoming Prime Minister Naftali Bennett is an ultra-nationalist implacably opposed to a Palestinian state. In the epidemic of police violence in the U.S., the harm suffered by Latinos is often overlooked. A new report by the group Unidos U.S., formerly known as the National Council of La Raza, found that 2,600 Latinos were killed each year in confrontations with law enforcement or died while in custody. The number of Latinos killed by police has risen 24 percent since 2014. According to a database search by the Washington Post, 5.7 blacks per million were killed by police officers since 2015. The death rate among Latinos was 4.2 deaths per million and 2.3 per million among whites. A higher rate of Latinos killed by police was seen in California and Midwestern cities, including Chicago and Minneapolis. In California, Latinos are 44% more likely to be perceived as possessing a firearm by police. This is the largest gap between a perceived threat and confirmed cases of gun possession of any ethnic or racial group in the state. Latino victims of police violence and their family members are becoming increasingly active in groups like Voices for Strength, which supports family members of victims killed by police. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Recent news reports revealed that the Trump Justice Department that was investigating the leak of classified government information about Trump Associates' contacts with Russia subpoenaed the Apple company for phone data records of reporters working for the New York Times, Washington Post, and CNN. The data sought spanned nearly four months in 2017. Reports later surfaced that the Trump DOJ had also taken the highly unusual step of issuing subpoenas for phone data from the accounts of Democratic House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff, Representative Eric Swalwell, as well as aides and family members. The Justice Department secured a gag order on the subpoena data that expired this year. Reacting to the disclosures, Joe Biden's Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that his Justice Department would no longer subpoena journalists' phone records a practice begun under President Obama. The Justice Department's Inspector General announced he would soon launch an investigation into the subpoenas. And Senate Democratic leaders demanded that former President Donald Trump's two attorneys general, William Barr and Jeff Sessions, testify about the seizure of these phone records. Your reporter spoke with constitutional attorney John Boniface, co-founder and president of the group Free Speech for People. Here he discusses the implications of the Trump Justice Department's secret seizure of journalists' and lawmakers' phone records 
and his advocacy of a broad investigation into Trump administration lawbreaking. Well, this was an incredible abuse of power that goes alongside the many other abuses of power committed by uh, the Trump administration. This was a complete violation uh, of the Fourth Amendment rights, uh, constitutional rights of privacy of those whose data was seized, uh, as well as a separation of powers challenge directly to members of Congress who were, of course, charged with investigating and conducting oversight of the Trump administration precisely because they were engaging in that conduct for which they're responsible as part of the legislative branch. They were targeted by Donald Trump and his administration. And and this really is very similar to what happened during the Nixon-Watergate era, uh, where Richard Nixon and, and his Justice Department sought to target political enemies misusing the powers of the government in doing so. Uh, So it's a very, very serious offense. It deserves full-scale investigation and accountability for all those who were involved. I'm glad to see the House Judiciary Committee has announced that they will conduct their own formal investigation into this surveillance by the Department of Justice and members of Congress, journalists and others. There's an important line in that statement they've issued in which Jerry Nadler, the House Judiciary Committee chairman, uh, said that while he is happy with the goal that Attorney General Garland has set out to repair the damage done by his predecessors and return a sense of normal to the Department of Justice, he says, quote, it is not, however, something we can accomplish by simply turning the page on the Trump era. And, and And I do have a serious concern Scott, that there is at least an indication in terms of the actions of the Justice Department that that is what they're doing with many of these offenses. Now, Merrick Garland has said he's he's going to have the independent uh, inspector general investigate at the Justice Department this matter, but it could take months or years for that report to be issued. And in the meantime, as we have highlighted for some months now to Attorney General Garland, there is a long list of potential crimes Donald Trump and his associates committed, which deserves the establishment of a special task force to investigate those crimes. I would put this along that list now. Uh, And what needs to happen for the Department of Justice to show that it's not just turning the page, but actually is engaging and holding Donald Trump and his associates accountable for any crimes they may have committed to set up this task force and to make clear that it will coordinate all such investigations and that no one, not even a former president, is above the law. That is critical for the state of our democracy, our Constitution, and the rule of law. When Barack Obama was president, his Justice Department actually did go after journalists trying to identify leaks of classified information. Right. Uh, Obama at the time was widely criticized for for doing that, and it was said that he would be setting a precedent for future occupants of the White House. Lo and behold, here's Donald Trump apparently doing what Barack Obama actually set in motion here. It was wrong when it happened under the Obama administration. It was wrong when it happened under the Trump administration, and and that's why Merrick Garland was under enormous pressure to say they were no longer going to engage in that same kind of behavior. We'll see if that's borne out and whether that new policy is actually 
implemented, but I think it was quite concerning the kind of surveillance of journalists that occurred uh, during the Obama administration. And I think it does lead to this further abuse of power that we've seen in the Trump administration. I'll say one other thing related to this is we also know President Obama, soon after he became president, made uh, public remarks that we are looking forward, not backward, when it came to the prior administration under George W. Bush with respect to the war crimes that were committed by the Bush administration, the torture in Guantanamo, uh, the war crimes that were committed with respect to the Iraq War, as well as with respect to the financial crimes committed by major bankers all around the country that led to the financial crisis of 2008. President Obama, newly elected, newly inaugurated, made clear we're looking forward, not backward. He sent a clear signal that those crimes would not be accounted for, those who committed them would not be held accountable. And that, you can draw a straight line from that statement and that decision not to prosecute those who had committed those crimes in the prior administration to the Trump administration and their decision that they could go even further and get away with even even more. Uh, and, and I think that's what's dangerous here. And this is why we must not repeat that mistake. We must not allow uh, this idea that because this is a new administration, there's much work to be done to pr- protect our democracy, to engage in building an economy that works for all. All of those things are critical, but so too must we uphold the rule of law and apply that to everyone equally, and that includes Donald Trump and his associates. That was constitutional attorney John Bonifaz, co-founder and president of the group Free Speech for People. Find more analysis and commentary on holding President Trump and his administration accountable for abuses of power by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. An investigation conducted by ProPublica revealed that the very wealthiest Americans, including Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Tesla CEO Elon Musk, Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, and right-wing media mogul Rupert Murdoch, pay very little in federal taxes in comparison to their massive wealth. ProPublica published their findings after obtaining a mountain of Internal Revenue Service data on the tax returns of thousands of the nation's wealthiest people, covering more than 15 years. An example of the valuable information found in these leaked tax documents is seen in Amazon's Jeff Bezos tax returns for 2007 and 2011, where the then-multi-billionaire, and now the world's richest man, paid not one red cent in income taxes. Your reporter spoke with Matthew Gardner, senior fellow with the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, who discusses the significance of what the ProPublica investigation revealed and the urgent need to reform the U.S. tax code to create a fair and equitable system that no longer rewards obscene wealth while penalizing working families. To me, there are two really important findings uh, in this report. One is that if you look at a very small number of the best-off Americans, at their effective tax rates in sort of a traditional way, take their taxes paid as a share of their AGI, their income reported on their income tax forms, 
they're paying remarkably low tax rates. Uh, these guys found an effective tax rate of 15% of income for the 25 wealthiest Americans over a five-year period between 2014 and 2018. So it's not cherry-picking. It's not like a single year. This is a pretty coherent multi-year look at the very best-off Americans, and it shows that they're paying a tax rate on their income less than half what you would expect from the top statutory rate that was in effect during this time. The second headline, and I think it's much more important than the first in the sense that it's telling us things we didn't really know, when you try to evaluate the taxes paid by the best-off Americans measured against an alternative, much broader measure of what uh, ProPublica calls the, the true income of these families, the, the tax rate these folks are paying is incredibly low, 1%, 2%. What's meant by true income for purposes of this article is uh, basically what they're trying to do is evaluate the growth of people's wealth. So, you know, if, you're, if you have a stock portfolio and it goes up from 1 million to 2 million, over the course of a year, because the stock market has gone way up, everything you own is now worth twice as much, that is meaningfully income and should be thought of as part of a much broader measure of income. So that's the second headline. So by either measure, what we see is that this very small, very privileged group of Americans are paying way less than you would think based on what we know about the, our tax system and how it's supposed to work. President Biden has proposed some fixes to our system. From your perspective, is Biden going far enough with his proposal? It still has to struggle through the filibuster in the Senate to go anywhere. But do tell us uh, your thoughts on what Biden's proposing and in a perfect world where you'd like to see the reforms go. As you know, uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, Biden has drawn this line in the sand at 400000 of income, uh, below which he will not, he says, impose tax hikes on anybody, and above which he will. Um, in the case of capital gains, he's gone even further and said, if and only if your taxable income is over $1 million, then we're going to get rid of this special lower tax rate for capital gains and dividends. And again, it's, it's only on taxable income over $1 million, that is, these, these capital gains. If that's true, then you're going to be subject to the same top tax rate, which in Biden's plan would be 39.6%, that would apply to other income, salary and wages. So we'd have complete equality at the very high end between, in theory, between the taxation of wealth and work. That is a big deal. Is it anywhere near what I would like to see? No. I think the straightforward uh, solution on capital gains should be simply stripping away all the capital gains preferences, treating wealth like work, taxing capital gains under the exact same rate structure that's applied to wages and, and, and all the other forms of income that middle and low income families uh, enjoy here. That's not what he's doing. Whether it's on the personal income tax side or on the corporate income tax side, where the president has proposed a really, to my mind, revolutionary an important and good set of corporate tax reforms. What we're seeing from this administration is a set of tax reforms that are designed to get both of the things I told you my organization cares about, sustainability and fairness. We're going to get a lot more tax revenue that we've been needing for decades, systematically underfunding important services, and we're going to get it in about as fair a way as you can imagine. 
by focusing on the very best off Americans. This is such a sea level change from what any administration in the past quarter century has meaningfully pursued. This is really the first time I can remember when I've seen a proposal that is really trying to change the narrative. It's trying to change the way we think about the role of taxes and about how they ought to look. And it's defending taxes on their face. It is a refreshing change. So yeah, I would love to see a more all-inclusive approach to taxing wealth like work, to taxing capital gains in the same way as wages. To Again, just to focus on that one narrow example. And because such a huge fraction of all capital gains is going to these folks over a million dollars to begin with, you know, in money terms, this is a really big deal. Uh, it goes a long way, not all the way, not even close to all the way, but a long way towards mitigating one of the worst sources of inequity in our tax code. That was Matthew Gardner, Senior Fellow with the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Learn more about the ProPublica investigation and what it reveals about the inequities in the U.S. tax system by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On his first day in office, President Joe Biden revoked the cross-border permit that former President Donald Trump had issued to the Canadian company TC Energy, formerly TransCanada, to build the Keystone XL pipeline from the tar sands of Alberta, Canada, down through the Midwest. The pipeline would have brought 830,000 barrels per day of the dirtiest energy source on the planet down to the Gulf Coast for refining. On June 9th, the company finally threw in the towel, ending its more than decade-long quest to build the controversial pipeline. The fight to stop the Keystone Pipeline became the biggest fight in the U.S. against dirty energy linked to climate change, involving tens of thousands who marched and rallied, and thousands more who were arrested in acts of nonviolent civil disobedience. Much of the organized opposition was centered in Nebraska. Art Tanderup is a Nebraska farmer who became involved in the movement to stop the Keystone Pipeline in May 2012 when he learned the pipeline route went through his farm. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Tanderup about how they achieved their victory, solidarity with opponents of ongoing pipeline projects, and the hard work that remains. You know, we have the farmers, the ranchers, and the Native Americans that all work together and then we had the environmental groups that all came in, as well as uh, you know just individuals who are concerned, uh, who are concerned about climate change, who are concerned about uh, destroying the earth with uh, tar sands. All these people came together to work together uh, to fight this thing. And uh, here in Nebraska, we've been the persistent ones. They thought they would just come in here and slap this thing in the ground you know we haven't let them do that so it's been uh 
you know, it's been an interesting time, an interesting battle to help save the earth and to, uh, uh, you know, protect the people and so forth. So, and, and especially the water, you know, right here where we live, we're right over the Ogallala Aquifer. We're just a few feet above it. And any leak in that pipeline would get into that aquifer and could never be cleaned up. So that has been uh, the greatest motivator for the people in the Midwest here fighting this pipeline. Ultimately, it was a huge battle. It lasted, you know, 10 years or so. And, and you know, now people are fighting line three, which is another Canadian pipeline, tar sands pipeline. It's exactly the same thing. And it's about the same capacity as, as KXL would have been. Do you have any thoughts about what they could do to bring about the same result that you got with KXL? We need to convince uh, President Biden to stop all these tar sands pipelines. And a new coalition has been formed. Jane Kleb from Old Nebraska has been up in Minnesota working with the people on the ground up there. And it's basically, you know, lessons learned, lessons that we learned from KXL. How did we win this battle against KXL? What things did we do here in Nebraska and South Dakota that you can do up here in Minnesota? Can you share any of the things that Jane Club is sharing with people up in Minnesota in terms of what worked? You build a barn in the path of the pipeline. You have a concert in my cornfield. You create huge crop arts that send messages out to the world. You plant sacred corn. You do other types of resistance that gets media attention and it catches them off guard. You know, for them to counter it, it's like they have to come up with a new playbook as well. You've got to let people know that, that they have something to believe in and they have power. Art Tanderup, are there any issues left unresolved? TransCanada is continuing to take easements on landowners that haven't given them easements in Nebraska. So why do they want to do that? You know, we can only guess. They want to sell the route. You know, is it to a company like Enbridge? Is it to a country like China or Saudi Arabia? They have something in mind here. They want that route complete so that it is saleable. And it's very possible if they can get it complete that they will get basically their entire investment out of this in the sale of it. So we are in court. They have admitted they're no longer building this pipeline. There is no reason for them to have eminent domain anymore. They were given eminent domain powers for this pipeline, not for anything else. You need to jerk every permit that they have and it needs to be over with. That was Art Tanderup, a Nebraska farmer and member of the group Bold Nebraska. Learn more about the successful campaign to stop the Keystone XL pipeline and opposition to other pipeline projects by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WERU in Blue Hill, Maine, WEFT in Champaign, Illinois, EJAZ Radio in Kampala, Uganda, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>